Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You can walk on snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. They came back celebrating they had authority and power over demon forces. I guess that's something to be grateful for. But he's saying, hey, if you want to celebrate, celebrate life. Today we have part two of Jesus Transfigured, and we're taken up right where we left off on Friday, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. After witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, and hearing the words of the Father, it's time to come down from the mountaintop and back to the world that so much needs Jesus and his followers. So let's listen in. In the midst of all of this, it says, suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one but only Jesus with themselves. I like that. It's a picture for us because, because they see the lawgiver, they see the greatest of the, the uh, prophets, and then they see only Jesus. And if we wanna live and live for him, it won't be about the law, although it's good to know it. It won't be about the prophets, although it's important that we know he's fulfilling their prophecies. And it's good to know what's coming. But ultimately, it's about him. And when people get too much into the law, they backburner Jesus. When they get too much into prophecy, it can be prophecy about him, but they get focused so much on the prophecy, they forget that he's the subject of prophecy. He's the reason for prophecy. So make sure that you see him, that when you open the word and you read through it, I, I've practiced that, especially in teaching through the Old Testament. You come to a book like Leviticus. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. And if you're like, why did he tell me to read this? It's so hard and it's laborsome and it keeps saying these things over and over. Here's what I've learned. All you have to do is say, Jesus, where are you in this passage? And all of a sudden the thing blossoms. It's, it's like a seed that germinates and then shoots up and then blossoms all at once before you. You see what's actually there, how it's speaking of and pointing to him. Well, verse nine says, as they came down from the mountain, it's our second of three locations. First, they're on the mountain together. Jesus, Peter, James, John, Elijah, Moses, and then the father, because seven's better than six. And then they come down from the mountain. So they're on the road. He commands them that they should tell no one the things they'd seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, look at it, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. It's interesting. It can only mean one thing, can it not? But they couldn't see it because to understand this literally means he must mean the cross is literal. He must mean he's really going to die. He must mean he's really going to be buried. He must mean he will be resurrected. But they just couldn't put how that could all be. And then the kingdom still be established. And, and here's why. They didn't see two comings. We'll come back to it in a moment. It's important. They only saw Jesus coming, and they thought he would fulfill all the prophecies related to his coming, including establishing his kingdom on the earth. That's why they were so excited and often asked, are you now going to establish the kingdom? Are you now going to make it happen? 
That's why they argued which of them would be the greatest. Our next study, because they wanted their place in the kingdom. They wanted reservations, if possible, to be at his right hand and his left. Well, anyway, they questioned what he meant, but they really couldn't understand it because they just wouldn't see it literally. And then they asked him, saying, why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? See, they read Malachi. We just finished the Old Testament, our, our third time through it, Wednesday night. Last two chapters in Malachi. The last chapter is just six verses. And in the latter verses, it says before that Elijah will be returning before the great and notable day of the Lord. That could be one reason Peter was so excited. He's like, this has to be it. I mean, here's Elijah. But this wasn't the great and terrible or notable day of the Lord. Those words speak of Revelation 6 through 19, leading to Jesus coming and millennial kingdom on the earth, Revelation 20. And so, so his first coming, he comes to suffer. You know this well, to suffer and die for our sins, buried and risen again, ascended to heaven, promising to come for us and later return with us. All that leads to the question. They said, well, why, doesn't the scripture say, you know, Elijah must come first? Why did the scribes say that? And Jesus says, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. This subject of Jesus and Elijah and John the Baptist has confused many because, well, they ask John if he was, you know, some, well, some thought he was Elijah. Some thought Jesus was Elijah. That makes some sense because Elijah was supposed to come. But John said he wasn't and he wasn't the Messiah. And, and, and more than that, as they're wondering who he is, Jesus tells us and, and the scriptures tell us that, that, that John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Unlike Elijah, who was a great miracle worker, John worked no miracles. But the power that God anointed him with and gave to him enabled him to do what no one else was doing at that point, and that's call anyone and everyone to repentance, to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Lord, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, and, and to make a people ready for the Lord. So, Anyway, they're like, well, you know, doesn't, why are they saying Elijah comes first? And he says, Elijah has come. Jesus is saying, if you can understand it. And of course they couldn't, but we should be able to, no problem. John comes sort of representing Elijah, if you will, in Jesus' first coming. Because when Elijah comes, I believe wholeheartedly he's one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, Moses being the other, if you read that chapter, you'll see the things that they do perfectly mirror the things that Moses and Elijah had done in their time on earth. And so when they return, they're going to be working the same kinds of miracles. They're going to be hated by the people. In fact, when their bodies are slain, they're in the streets of Jerusalem. All the world begins to celebrate. It's like a satanic Christmas. Everybody's sending gifts to one another. And because these men who tormented them, how could Elijah and Moses torment anyone by telling them the truth in a time where nobody wants to hear it? 
And in the midst of that three days, they rise again from the dead and then the party's over. People are terrified and a lot of horrific things begin to begin again. Well, anyway, um, after all this, by the way, John prepares people for Jesus' first coming. Elijah prepares them for his second coming. And when he came to the disciples, verse 14, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed. Running to him, they greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Note these two words, discussing and disputing. There was a debate about what was going on in their midst. And what was going on in their midst? Another brokenhearted father, another devastated parent with a demon-possessed child. So they're in a discussion. They're in a debate. They're disputing about it. And one of the crowd says so, verse 17. He happens to be the father of that boy. One of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes its teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Another desperate father, another demon-possessed child. And I want to say the same thing happens today as debates rage. Well, when needy people are crying out. The essence of, of what we're called to do is to love God and love people, not to debate how they got themselves in that situation or discuss, well, does it really, you know, our thing to have to deal with? And, and or in the disciples case, they're going to have a question in a moment and that's going to be what happened? Why couldn't we, why couldn't we cast them out? So anyway, a curious failure by his disciples He'd empowered them after choosing them and discipling them. He commands them to go and preach and teach and heal and cast out demons. And well, they did all those things and more. And so they'd been empowered to do these things. And yet, having done so with great success, this time they're unable. Again, Luke fills in a blank for us. It's kind of glorious. I don't know if you're aware that the 12 were not the whole group of disciples at the point where this takes place, where, where Luke mentions at least them going out and casting out demons and such. There were 72 disciples and you can check that out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Um, anyway, it's, it's in Luke, should be somewhere around uh, verse 18, maybe. But uh, did I say a chapter? Now then just look at all the chapters and look at verse 18. <laughs> Now, it could be chapter 10, verse 8. I'll read you chapter 10, verse 18. I honestly, I don't remember. I think stuff. I jot it down and I forget to look up where it is. I know it's there, though. And, and here's what happens. Listen, he told them, um, I saw Satan. This is Luke 10, 18. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You can walk on snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. They came back celebrating they had authority and power over demon forces. I guess that's something to be grateful for. But he's saying, hey, if you want to celebrate, celebrate life. Celebrate what's eternal, not just what's temporal. Celebrate the glory of living forever in the presence of God, not just the power that you have on earth for that's temporal and life is eternal. 
Well, anyway, the 72 are like, man, we've got power over demons. And he says, you should be celebrating that your names are registered in heaven. And he answers and says to them, O faithless generation, verse 19, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. He fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. He asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. How often he's, and often he's thrown him both in the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This is so important. This man has faith that Jesus can do wonders. He's probably heard a lot about him, potentially hasn't seen Jesus do any of those things though. So he, he's not presuming on Jesus or demanding anything from Jesus. And he has faith in Jesus, but it's a limited faith just as we've seen with so many others. It's not perfect faith, but it's faith in Jesus. And what's he saying? If you can believe Jesus responds, all things are possible to him who believes. So he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus just says, hey, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. The impossible becomes possible. He has his plea for help. Again, no presumption, no demands, no expectation, just a father's plea for his hurting son. And I like that he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us, help us because he identifies with his son so strongly. It's not like help him, I can't bear to watch them go through this. It's like help us, because he suffered when his son suffers. And so we're told our father's that way, that, that he suffers when we suffer, and that we're to suffer when one part of the body suffers. He says the whole body suffers, whether we recognize it or not. Well, immediately the father of the child cries out and said with tears, and this is an absolutely honest prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He knows the Lord knows the truth. He has faith in Jesus, but he's not absolutely convinced that he's going to help him. So he's saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. Some of us should pray that very thing today. Lord, I know you can do anything. I'm praying for my sick father or my sick wife or my sick brother or, or whoever it might be. And I know what you can do and I have faith in you. Help my unbelief. Strengthen my faith in you. Let faith replace any doubt, Lord. Absolutely honest. He does, he did, he will. But like that man, we just need to ask well, when Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. I love those last four words. It's radical. The father had to be jumping for joy, at least within the moment Jesus said for that demon to come out of him. But he's not just setting him free. He's setting him free forever because he says, enter him no more. So important. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And the only way we end up in bondage 
is to submit ourselves to something else or someone else when we've already said Jesus is Lord. If he's Lord, we're his servants. We should be saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Not is it okay if I do this, Lord, or do you think this would really be that bad? I mean, everybody's doing it. All my friends are going. I know they have a few things that don't seem exactly right. And if you ever play that head game, it's good to stop. Here, here's something else the Lord showed me years ago. From time to time, happens less and less. The clearer I am up here, the less people come down for an explanation later. But I have, you know, had quite a few people come down over the years, and that's fine. But, but from time to time, people will come after I just say, well, listen, if you have any doubtful habit, you should just stop. And they'll come and say, you know, I'm not really sure about this. You know, is it okay for a Christian to do this? And I just want to say, if you're asking that question, it's not okay for you. And, and so that's, that's how I see it. You know, it's not like if people are telling you, oh, a Christian can't do that. Well, that may be true or may not. I remember when I was first gave my life to the Lord, I was a stoner before I, I, I got, you know, gave my life to the Lord. And, and then after I gave my life to the Lord, I was a Christian stoner. I didn't know you couldn't be that. And so people came and said, you can't be a Christian stoner. There's no t-shirt, stoners for Christ, you know. And they're like, you can't smoke pot and, and, and grow in Jesus. And I'm like, well, show me that in the Bible. I was truly born again, but I, there was a lot I didn't know. And some things I really didn't want to learn. So uh, nevertheless, the point is this. It's not true that you can't be a Christian stoner. It's just you can't go on in your sin and still grow and be fruitful for him. And, and so once I understood, and I asked my pastor, I stood in a long line with my best friend who also was a Christian stoner. And I said, my friend here has a problem and a question. And uh, I said, no, Pastor Chuck, you know, people are telling us, you know, we've, we're like musicians and we smoke pot and we gave our life to the Lord. And people are trying to say we're not supposed to smoke pot. And he just explained what pot was and where it comes from, that it's, you know, the whole drug thing. It's from pharmacia. It has its roots in sorcery. He wasn't anti-aspirin or anti-medication. He was just saying, pot's not going to help you become the person God wants you to be. And he said it in such a loving and meant, just sort of matter-of-fact way. There was no, get, you know, watch these two, you know. It's none of that. And Leo pastors now in San Diego. Both of us have been in the ministry for 35 plus years. And it's just, the point is, people come to him and, and aren't sure about what's right or what's not right. If you're not sure about it, stop it. And, and if you're sure that it's okay, he says, blessed is the one who doesn't condemn himself in the thing he approves. Whatever isn't of faith is sin. So anyway, don't know how I got down that road, but the spirit cries out, convulsed him, comes out, he became his one dead. Many said he's dead. When somebody looks dead, that's reasonable assumption. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. I love that. He did the same to the little girl who had died. He just reaches out and he speaks to her and he takes her and lifts her up. When he'd come into the house, verse 28, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. I want to say miracles are gifts from God. And these guys had been chosen and discipled and empowered and they had worked mighty miracles in his name and now they find themselves failing to do so. And there's really two sides, there's sort of like a two-sided coin here. 
which I think all coins are two-sided. But, but the, the first is that he says this kind goes out only by prayer and fasting. Now, we have an example of that in Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, we're going to have to take some time to pray and fast if this is going to work, because he had a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. Prayer, you know what that is. It's intimate conversation, communication, uh, relationship with the Father. Uh, fasting is just denying yourself something in the natural so you can focus on the supernatural, on the spiritual, on the eternal. So the temporal is backburnered so that the eternal things can come to the foreground. And, and, and listen, we all need to do this. And while fasting from, you know, food can be healthy, uh, today I would suggest a media fast. Nothing could be more healthy to your spiritual time with the Lord than a fast from every form of media. Where you go somewhere for 12 hours or you can get that long or six hours or whatever you can get. You don't take anything with you that's going to go off or buzz or, you know, give you notifications. And, but, but just you and your Bible and the Father. And you're just talking and praying and reading. And that will be life transforming. Because when we fast from those things that distract us and encumber us, well, we tend to focus more spiritually. Now, it's possible they've been neglecting one or both. But, and so he might just be saying, guys, you know, you've kind of, you're slipping in these areas. I don't know if that's actually it, though. It, it might just be that, that what he, he's trying to, to remind us of is that we're limited and flawed and, and, and growing, but not fully there. And so God uses us and we start to think, man, we got this. We're rejoicing over it. We're boasting about it. And all of a sudden, it's not happening. And if that's the case, listen, then we just go back to him and say, Lord, what happened? And what do you want me to do to make this right? How do I get right with you so I can be fruitful for you? And I don't think it's so much failure on their part as, as a reminder that, that it's like the work we're engaged in is supernatural. It has eternal implications. It's a life and death situation, but even more than life and death physically, life and death eternally. So they depart from there. They pass through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know it. He taught his disciples and said, the son of man is being betrayed. The idea here is it's going down. They're plotting and planning and, and, and it's going to happen, but it's not like they're going to betray me. I'm being betrayed, he says, at this time into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he's killed, listen, there's the bad news, right? He always follows it with good news. He will rise the third day. There's the good news. But they did not understand this saying and they were afraid to ask him, listen, if you get the bad news that the wages of sin is death, hear the good news, the gift of God, everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you hear the bad news, all of sin and come short of the glory of God, hear the good news. Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again. There's life and forgiveness, life everlasting and forgiveness in him. If you're one that you hear the bad news and you're not really interested in the good news, well, there's good news for you then. There's more bad news. You can go home and turn it on because it's 24-7 now. Bad news everywhere. Good news in here. 
As I think about the apostles questioning Jesus about why they could not cast out the demon, I cannot help to think about Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus told them that he recognized that they have had patience and they've labored for his namesake. However, he told them that they have left their first love. Now we can find the same thing can happen to us. We're faithful to labor for his namesake. We're faithful to remain in fellowship. Yet we find that our ministries and our works have for some reason lost their edge and have become somewhat fruitless. Well, what did Jesus tell them to do? He said, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. What's our application of this? Go back to a time when you were on fire for the Lord. Remember what you were doing and do it again. If you have stopped spending quiet time with the Lord, get back to it. If you have stopped spending time in worship, get back to it and get that cutting edge back again. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.